0: Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Romans chapter 1 as we continue our study of the book of Romans and, and our maybe exhaustive study of chapter 1. And our text this morning will be three verses, verses 13 to 15. But again, we want to put these verses in context. And so we want to begin at verse 8 as there is this section here, this thanksgiving section, and this, circ- this section that ultimately describes the circumstances by which he is writing this book. Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 8. Paul writes as he is moved by the Holy Spirit, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you, while among you, each of us by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you, and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to, the, to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. There ends the reading of God's inerrant word this morning, Let us go to the Lord in prayer before we go to his word. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is put in human language for us to understand, that we can now have it in its written form before us, that you have given us the Holy Spirit to illuminate its truth so that we can know it for sure. And so I pray this morning that you would use your word in our hearts as you see fit to convict us, to build us up, to break us down, or even to harden as you sovereignly see fit. And so this morning I pray that you will again uh, be our teacher and that you will build your church here this morning in your name. Amen. Well, we've been going through this section here, verses 8 to 15, and we've been talking about commitments, about how we are to be making commitments to other believers. And though Paul is giving us this historical background and, and the historical circumstances behind his writing the letter, and though he is giving thanks for them and praying, We also recognize that as he does this, he demonstrates a heart for the Roman church and for those Roman believers there. And so he wants, as we could say, we could see these commitments that he has made towards the Roman church. These commitments that really every believer, because Paul is, is a leader in the church, he's an apostle of God, and he's an example for us, and therefore we should follow that example, and we too should be making these commitments to fellow believers. Whether those believers, and, and again, this is primarily in the context of the local church. He's, he's writing to a local church, he, and so these commitments are primarily to the believers within our local body. Now, certainly we do want to have these, some of these commitments to other believers as well. But primarily, Paul is speaking to those within the same fellowship. In other words, your commitment as a believer and your spiritual commitments should be to those to the church in which you attend. That is where God has planted you. That is where he has given you your gifts to be exercised. And so your commitments need to be primarily to your local church. right? The Bible describes the local church as family. This is your family. This is where your energy is to go. And so, yes, we do have contact with believers from other churches and we, and we have fellowship with them. But your primary circle of commitment needs to be to the local body because that is where God has planted you. And therefore, that is where you are to exercise your giftedness. This is where you are to be committed. And so Paul, as he began, gave us, we've already looked at five commitments. We were told, number one, that we were to thank God for each other. In other words, we needed to be able to look at each other and look beyond the faults of each other and to see what God is doing there and and to recognize that God is working in our fellow church people and therefore we want to praise God for what he is working out. Secondly, we need to pray for them consistently. That is to be one of the jobs that we are committed to as believers. This is what we must do. I must pray for you. You must pray for me. And so this is not something that is optional for the believer. And we looked at that. This is actually something that we're commanded to do. And if we don't pray for one another, it's actually disobedience. And sometimes it seems like, well, we should do this. But when we put it in the negative, actually, it's disobedience. It's like, whoa. Actually, maybe I, maybe I need to be doing this. And so Paul says, I'm committed to it. You need to be committed to it. Thirdly, we saw that we needed to, we needed to be committed to enjoying one another, being with one another and just enjoying one another. It, to just have fellowship together and have those times where we just actually like being together. It's like a family in the family room, right? Right? You don't even really have to be doing a whole lot. You're just together and you're hanging out and you're just enjoying one another. And Paul says, this is what, I'm committed to that. You need to be committed to that. And then we saw that we were, number four, we were to promote their spiritual growth. We need to be those who are actively active in promoting spiritual growth in others. We need to be intentional about that. In other words, we need to make sure that we are the one who are driving conversation to spiritual issues rather than staying on on the mundane and the vertical and the worldly things. And number five, we were supposed to pursue the mutual benefits of fellowship. And what we said by that is this. There's no believer who's too mature to get benefit from another believer. In other words, we need to recognize that you're not ever too good for someone to, to encourage you in the faith and that you're never too weak for someone else to encourage someone else in other words when it, when a mature believer sees an immature believer start to grow and and they, and they see their struggles and they see their love for the lord that's an encouragement we don't we don't say oh well that's they're immature that's terrible we look at them and say, wow, look at their love, look at their passion. Maybe I need to renew my love for God. And so we recognize that we need to pursue the mutual benefits of fellowship. We need to be together so that we can encourage one another in the faith. Now that leads us this morning to our final three commitments that Paul makes in this passage. And he's going to give us three new commitments. And he's going to say, first of all, you need to use your giftedness to serve one another. In other words, you have been gifted with gifts, and you need to use that to help others. And then he's going to say, we must receive all Christians. And the idea is this, there are no boundaries or no uh, partiality in the body. In other words, when we come together together, We are all equal. There's nothing that separates us in any way, whether that's culture, whether that's language, whatever that is, we are to be together. And then lastly, we are called to make a commitment to keep the gospel central to our gatherings and are central to our relationships. And so we will touch on that as well. So first of all, it comes to our sixth commitment, and he says this, use your giftedness to serve them, and he says in verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I have often planned to come to you and have been prevented so far. Now some of your translations will say now, and he's kind of transitioning here in thought in order to in order to give more of an explanation. And he uses this phrase, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. And Paul uses this phrase often, and, and he uses it when he is calling attention to something that is important. In other words, here's something I want you to pay attention to. Here's something that I think you need to hear. And so, basically, pay attention. But he also uses this phrase to introduce things to his readers that they might not know. In other words, he, they might not be expected to know because this is maybe new information that he's giving them. He uses this often. He used it in, in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, calling the Gentiles to salvation, the mystery of God. He's talked about the mystery of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. And if you remember when we went through 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 13 He's speaking there about those who have fallen asleep in Christ. And he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of those who have fallen asleep. And then he gives them new information. Here's what's happened to them. You don't need to cry. You don't need to be upset. They didn't miss the parousia. They're going to be gathered to God. In fact, they're going to get there just a little before you. and, And they haven't missed that. And so it's good. And so Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware. In other words, <laughs> I don't want you to remain in a state of ignorance. I don't want you to be, continue to be unaware. I don't want you to be continually unknowing. And then he's going to tell us what, it, what not to be unaware of. But then he interjects this little word, brethren. And he just kind of drops it in. I don't want you to be unaware what brethren and it's clear he's speaking to believers but Paul again has never met these romans he's never actually been with them and yet he uses this term brethren and it's a term of a term of kinship and he says we're in the same family we have the, we're in the family of God, and so he brings, he brings a, an intimacy here to a people that he doesn't even know, but he calls them to remember, listen, I'm addressing you as a brother in Christ, in the family of God. And so he brings that intimacy and a sense of that intimacy as he communicates with them. And so Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brother, that I have often what? Planned to come to you. I, 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 he says, I, I've, "I've tried to come to you. I've consistently tried. In fact, it's interesting this word here. He says, "I have often planned to come to you." He, he, we remember back in, in verse, verse 10, he said, "Always in my prayers, make requests, if perhaps now I might what, may succeed in coming to you." Chapter 15, verse 23, I had for many years a longing to come to see you. In Acts chapter 19, verse 21, saying, After I have been there a while, I will also come and see those in Rome. So Paul had been planning, and he says, I have often planned. I have on repeated occasions, I have made repeated attempts to come to see you. And he says, I planned, I intended, I had purpose. I was, I had absolutely put my will towards this. I was personally invested in coming to see you. I had a personal commitment and plan. I did this over and over again. You can almost hear him saying, go check the local travel agency. Several times I made a reservation to get a donkey to come your way, but guess what? I had to cancel. That, uh, that might be added. But Paul is saying, listen, I have tried repeatedly. I have have made an effort. I just didn't have some winsome idea. I didn't just pine away for you. I did something about it. But in spite of his desires and in spite of his prayers and in spite of his repeated plans, he was prevented, it says, from going. Verse 13. And having been prevented so far. Paul says, so far I haven't been able to do it. And he introduces this parenthetical statement. Why can't I come? Why haven't I made it? And in spite of all of these attempts, he says, I've been hindered. Now he doesn't tell us specifically here why he was prevented from coming. He doesn't say, well, for this reason. But we know that Paul has been hindered in his, in his ministry before. And he mentions this. In fact, when he was going to the Thessalonians, or he wanted to go to the Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians 2.18, he says, I wanted to come to you more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. And Paul says, I wanted to come to Philippi with what? I mean, to Thessalonica, what? With my missionary team, but what? Satan hindered me. And Paul saw that there was satanic resistance to him coming. In fact, we saw that when he was kicked out, that his friends there put up basically a bond that that if Paul went back, that they would get into trouble. And so Paul was prevented by the Jews who rose up against him from going back to Thessalonica. We also know that Paul tells us that he wanted to go to Asia in Acts chapter 16, verse 6. And there, Paul says that the Holy Spirit prevented him going. The Holy Spirit wouldn't let him go. In fact, verse verse 7 says that the Spirit of Christ prevented him from going through Bithynia and the towns there. And so Paul says, actually, I was hindered by the Spirit. This time it was the Spirit. Last time it, he attributed it to Satan. This time he attributes it to the Spirit. He doesn't tell us how the Spirit prevented him from going, but he says, I was prevented. But here in Romans, I don't think it's for either one of those reasons. Now, we can't be dogmatic about this, but I'm going to be fairly certain about this. <laughs> um, what did I say in Sunday school class? Often wrong, never in doubt. But I truly believe that this is the case here. And so I wouldn't bring it to the pulpit if I didn't believe it to be true. Paul has been ministering in Eastern Europe. He's probably spent 25 years to 30 years as he's been ministering there. And remember that Paul has... And and so he has been ministering in that area for a long time. And I would say he couldn't go to Rome because he had ministry opportunities and, and, and ministry necessity in Eastern Europe. If we look at Romans chapter 15, I think this is the clue that we get. And, and I think this is why Paul was delayed in coming to, to the Roman church. He says, I'll begin in verse 18, Romans chapter 15, verse 18. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by the word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem round and round about, as far as Iliacum, I have fully approached... Preach the gospel of Christ. He says, I have preached the gospel fully here, and thus I aspired to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another's foundations. Paul says, In my ministry, I didn't want to go to a place where the gospel had already come. I want I didn't want to build on another man's foundation. I wanted to lay the foundation and I wanted to go a place and preach the gospel in a new area. And he says, but as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see and they who had not heard shall understand. So in other words, I've gone and I've given the gospel and and now they they can see and now they can understand. He says, for this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you. In other words, there's places to preach the gospel. My ministry wasn't done here. Therefore, I couldn't come see you. But now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you. He says, I've now preached everywhere. Everywhere my ministry is done. There's no place else for me to go that is new. Now I, want, now I can come to you because I'm going to Spain because I've never preached there and I'm going to go to a new area and sp- spread the gospel. And so Paul is hindered from coming, I believe, simply because he had ministry in, in, the, in the Eastern Asia there where he needed to finish before he moved on. And so it's sort of like you, you, you start to make plans to travel. Oh, more ministry to be done. Oh, plans to travel. Oh, more ministry to be done. And so Paul is now finished. He has finished his missionary journeys. He has gone through Asia. Remember, he planted on the first trip. Second trip, he, he, he again strengthens the church. Third trip, he strengthens the church. Now he's done. And so Paul, the church planter, is now going off to Spain to plant churches. So Paul says, I have on a number of occasions made plans to come to you. I've made these plans to come to you. Now this is not the point of the passage, but I think it's interesting that Paul gives us some clues about the will of God here. Now we've been talking about the will of God on Tuesdays, and so this is just a nice segue to, to get you interested in what we're doing at prayer meeting we've been talking about the will of God but if you look at Paul here as he looks for the will of God first of all he prays and he prays but he prays what according to God's will right he is he is praying and he that God might what allow him to go in other words Paul is laying down his will to God's will he doesn't demand, he doesn't make sure, say that God must do this for him. He says, perhaps at last by the will of God I might come. Verse 10. Right? So he, does, he, he, is, he is in essence laying down his will to God. Your will be done. If the Lord wills, I will come. I want to come according not to my will, but according to God's will. Now notice this too opportunity here, I mean obstacles do not mean that it's not God's will. Because Paul has been praying and, and he's been praying and praying and praying and not able to go. And yet he still has the desire for God's glory and for, his, for his, the spread of the gospel it to, to go. And so he continues to pray even though there are obstacles. And so not always because there are obstacles does that, does that mean that God says No. In fact, he may say, not now. He may say later, which he did with Paul. I mean, Paul actually arrived in Rome, what? In chains, but he got there, right? So God says, in my time and in my place. We also want to recognize opportunity does not mean God's will. In other words, just because there's an opportunity and just because your desire is good doesn't make it God's will for you. Right? We remember David when he went to build the temple. He says, God, it's not fair that I have a palace and you don't have a place to be worshipped. Let me build a house for you. And God said to David, what? No, you've got, you, it's a good desire, but you've got too much blood on your hands. You can't build my temple. Your son will build the temple. And so again, the Proverbs tells us, a man plans his way, but what God directs his path. Paul made plans. He just didn't wait. He didn't just say, Lord, um, if, give me a feeling. Give me some peace. He didn't say that. He made plans and went in a direction. And when the circumstances came along that prevented it from going, then he didn't go. And so we want to recognize that Paul did not have this a clear revelation plan for his life. Even as an apostle, he didn't have it. And nor does he ever say that upon not having peace, I didn't travel. He just says, actually, I was prevented from coming. That's it. He, he says circumstances, and we would understand even here, the circumstances of ministry kept him from coming. There was needs that came up, therefore he went and met them. And we'll see that circumstances are exactly what took Paul to what? To Rome. Right? There was no no voice to Paul that told Paul, Hey, guess what? You're going to get arrested and you're going to go to Rome that way. In fact, Paul appealed to Rome. Why? Because he didn't want to die. Right? He didn't know the future. He, He just appealed because that was his right. And so I think as we look at Paul... We can certainly see that the will of God is, is, is something that we need to seek through prayer, but we also recognize that, that good desires don't make it God's will, obstacles don't mean it's not God's will, but simply we need to plan in what? Let God direct your path. Let God through providence as you live obediently for his kingdom like Paul did. He, went, he lived for the will of God, he lived for the glory of God, and then he just planned and then let circumstances through providence take care of it. So that is how we are to look for the will of God. Well, let's go back to Romans chapter 1. That was just an excerpt. But I think the principles are there for us as we, as we look at the Word of God. The Word of God is so rich. We can, maybe we'll come back and repreach this one about the will of God. He says in Romans 1.13, now there's that comment at the end of verse 13, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. He, he says, so that I may attain fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. So we learn several things from that phrase, just simply this. Remember that we discussed that the church in Rome is primarily a Gentile church. We, we talked about how it was probably started by Jews and Gentile proselytes who were there at Pentecost, who had a witness to the Holy Spirit coming down and, and speaking in languages. They had come back to Rome, started the church. But then in AD 40, Empire Julian had, in AD 49... Had, told, had kicked all the Jews out of, the, of Rome, and it wasn't until his death five years later that the Jews were allowed back in. And so Paul is writing this letter shortly after that period of time. And so the church, though there are some Jews there, is primarily Gentile. We also notice that he wants fruit from them, even as among the rest of the Gentiles, which means that Paul already had fruit. He had already had a successful ministry somewhere else. But Paul's desire now is to obtain fruit among them just like he had other places. Now what does Paul mean by obtain some fruit among you? Well, he uses the word fruit in several different ways in Scripture. He uses it of spiritual attitudes in Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit produces love, joy, peace, long-suffering, etc. So there are those attitude fruits. And again, we would say this is the primary work of the Spirit in us, is that He produces attitude fruit that actually turn into action fruit. He also uses this same term of righteous actions. He's talking about in chapter uh, Romans 6.22, he's talking about righteous actions that we produce in our lives. Romans 6.22, where he says, But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefits resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. So you, you, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outwork of eternal life. He also uses this word, the same word for fruit, and he, he uses it in chapter 16, 5. It is used of a new convert. So he says there there's fruit here, and that fruit is a new convert. This is someone who's come to salvation and is now a, a fruit of ministry. He says, also greet the church that is in the house. Greet Eponetus, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. And there's that word, that fruit, that convert. And then the fourth way he uses this word fruit is in a general sense of spiritual results from his ministry. The salvation of unbelievers and the edification of believers. And so, what does he mean here when he says, I want to obtain fruit among you? Which one of this is? Well, it's possible that Paul is referring to seeing people come to Christ. After all, he is bringing the gospel, and he's preaching the gospel in Rome. And many commentators would say, yeah, this is exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about he wants to come and get converts in Rome. And though I do believe that is part of it, I'm not not convinced of that because Paul here is talking to Christians about Christians because he talks about among you, and he's talking about our commitments to one another. And I think he's primarily speaking here about their spiritual maturity, about them growing in Christ-likeness, about the fruit of, uh, of growing and having this fruit of spiritual attitudes and righteous actions. Now, Paul has focused in in verse 12 on the mutual encouragement, but as he refocuses in in verse 13, he speaks specifically and refocuses on his ministry to them. He's talking about his uh, gathering fruit from them, and he's talking about his apostolic ministry. That ministry that he talked about that, had, that he had been called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And so Paul now is speaking, and he says, Paul says, I want to use my giftedness. I'm refocusing on my ministry to you, and I want to use that giftedness, this call as an apostle, to, I want to use it in Rome to produce spiritual fruit among you. I want there to be spiritual attitudes and spiritual actions that come as I come and minister to you. And so Paul has refers to his apostolic office as a gift. He says in 1 Corinthians 12:28, "And God has appointed in the church what first apostles and then he goes on and describes several things and then he says, "Desire the greater gifts." And there he's not speaking to individuals you want, you need to desire greater gifts. He's saying to the church, recognize the value of the gifts. In other words, recognize the things that bring most value to the church. And one of those gifts that God has given and he gave to the early church was the apostolic office. He says the same thing in Ephesians 4.11 where he speaks of his apostolic office as being a gift. And so Paul wanted to use that gifted, his giftedness of being an apostle for the spiritual benefit of the Romans. And that's why he wanted to go visit them. It wasn't about him. It wasn't about what he could benefit primarily. It was about what was good for them. And so Paul says, I want to use my giftedness for them. I want to come and use what God has given to me to help them. Now, if we go beneath that and we see the principle there, we will see that, there, that we have all been given spiritual giftedness. If you're a believer, when you came to salvation, you have been given a spiritual capacity for service to the church. You receive those at the, time of, at the moment of your salvation. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. He, he disperses to those whom he desires. And he equipped you to serve the body of Christ. And that's why we talk about this has to be a commitment to the local body because your gifting is supposed to be exercised within the local body. Paul describes some of these in Romans Chapter Twelve. If you just flip over to Romans Chapter Twelve, beginning at verse three, Paul writes for Through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, now notice that, everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, and he's particularly speaking here in the area of spiritual gifts. I want you to have sound judgment when you think about that. God has allotted you according to the measure of faith, for just as we have many members in one body, and all members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And so he says, Listen, we all have a different function. We're all in the spiritual body of Christ, we all belong to the church. But he says, just like your physical members, just like your body has different functions, your your brain is different than your heart, than your lungs, and your foot, than your hand. He says, so too in the church there is a different function for, of all the believers. And he says, since we have gifts, in verse 6, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given us, each of us is to exercise them what? Appropriately. And there's a call to use our, our spiritual gifts And then he goes on to describe what that looks like in the case of a number of spiritual gifts in that chapter. Paul talks about this again in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul begins to talk about spiritual gifts, and they were having problems in Corinth. Uh, They were wanting to use their gifts to, to, to make themselves look good in front of others. It was about self-edification. And Paul says, he begins and he lays this foundation and he says in 1 Corinthians 12, 4, now there are a variety of charismata or special gifts. There are all kinds of packages of giftedness God gives, but the same spirit. In other words, the spirit delegates these different variety of gifts, and there are a variety of ministers, ministries, places to use those gifts, but the same sovereign Lord who gives them out. Now, I like, that, I like that phrase. There are packages of gifts, and we've talked about this before. We don't just get one gift. God gives us varying gifts, and he gives them in varying degrees. And that's why each believer is so unique and each believer is so necessary for the building up of the body. And that's why when one believer doesn't show up to church, the church suffers because no one can replace that person. Their gifting is unique and special. And so we will have those who have varying degrees of teaching gifts, varying degrees of mercy gifts, varying degrees of service gifts. And there will be all these degrees and so everyone is absolutely unique. And so we are called to come together and to use those gifts together. And again, God sovereignly places them in you. You can't get more of them. You can't, you can't get rid of them. You can only use them. And so he... he determines the result of even of our efforts. He says in verse 7 of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, but each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit, what? For the common good. He says in Ephesians 4, but each of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. In other words, it's given for the building up of the body. Your gifts are not about you. They're not about satisfying you. Though using them will give you satisfaction. But it's about serving the body. And so Paul talks about how they've been, he has been gifted. In verse 11, of, he says, He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Paul says, God has given these gifts to the church for the equipping of the saints so that you would, what, do the work of service of the building up of the body until we obtain, what, the Christ-likeness in Christ, the fullness of the man Christ Jesus. Peter continues on this idea. He says, as as each one has received a special gift or a spiritual gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And then he divides the gifts into speaking gifts and serving gifts and, he, and how we are to exercise both gifts. And so we are to use these gifts for the building up of the body of Christ in serving one another. To some degree, this has been lost in the church. And we've talked about this in counseling, where we have had a psychological gospel that has been given to people, and people have been brought, and they have said, people have said to them, you have problems in your life. You're messed up. You need Jesus. Come to Jesus and he will fix all of your problems. And people come to church and they come to church not to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and make him Lord of their life, but to get something from him. And the church has become a place where people come to get rather than to serve. And Paul says, actually, you need to be committed to come to church to use your gifting to build up the body. You're not here, and we've said this before, you're not here for just a spiritual fill-up. You're here to come to exercise your gifts. And minimally, you need to do it on Sunday, but we need to be doing it through the week to one another. Your giftiveness is not just for one day a week. It needs to start there. But we need to be committed and say, I am going to come to church and I'm not coming to church to say, what can I get out of this? Who can encourage me? Who can make me feel good about myself? We need to be coming here and have the Lord Jesus Christ central to worship him and to serve one another and encourage one another. Quite frankly, if you're coming here and you're coming here to get, then you are forgetting, you are ignoring what the Holy Spirit has actually called you to do. The Holy Spirit's plan is to take the gifts he's given to you and for you to serve your brethren. And trust me, you may not always get served, but you can always serve. You can always serve. And if that is your goal, you will always go home satisfied and say, what a great place to be. I was able to encourage somebody. I was able to help them in the Lord. Praise the Lord. And you know what? The focus is outward instead of inward. Instead of looking at me and my needs and what I need, you're looking at others and seeing what God can do in their lives. Trust me, the joy just flows. Paul says, I'm committed to this. I'm committed to using my giftedness for the Roman's good. And he says, you too need to be committed to that. We must be as committed as Paul. So Paul says, use your giftedness to serve. And then secondly, he says, we must receive all Christians. We must receive all Christians. This is that seventh commitment. He says, look at, with me at verse 14. I am under obligation, Paul said, both to the Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. Paul uses this word under obligation. And, the, and the, it sometimes is used, it was used in, in Greek for an actual debt. You owed somebody, you were a debtor. But here Paul says, actually, I have a moral debt. I have a moral debt to all the Gentiles because I have been commissioned by God to be an apostle and to be set apart for the gospel of God. In fact, he said in verse 5, through Jesus Christ our Lord, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his what? his namesake this is this is what I've been called to this is why I'm under obligation and Paul says my commission is to reach the Gentiles I am I am the apostle to the Gentiles and if you remember in Acts chapter 9 when Paul was was called on the road to Damascus after his, right after his experience the Lord sends Ananias And remember Ananias, he's a little fearful because what's Saul been doing to this point? He's been killing Christians. And now God says, hey, I want you to go meet this guy. So you can kind of see that he might be just a little reticent. But God says to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. I chose Paul, he's my instrument, to bear my name, but what? Before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. He said, I'm called, Paul's called what? To go to the Gentiles. He certainly would be before kings. He certainly would witness to the Jews as well. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, <clears throat> he says this, For I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am, what, under compulsion. I'm under compulsion, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. In other words, I've got to do it. Regardless if I want to or not, I've been given a stewardship. I have a responsibility, and I must. This has been given to me and my commission is to what? To reach the gentiles. Now you'll notice here in your Bible he describes probably the gentiles going back to the verse before and notice he gives two sets of dis- pairs of nouns that describe these gentiles. Now notice this He says, first, I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, to Greeks and barbarians. The word Greek is sometimes used specifically of those who are of Greek descent. So there are are those who come from Greece and they are Grecian, they're born Greek. But this term eventually came to describe all of those who spoke Greek and were influenced by Greek culture. In fact, that was one of the great uh, prides that they had as a people that they were spreading greek culture and greek philosophy around the world and the greek language and we know that before the roman empire alexander the great had a great influence as he conquered much of the known world and so as the greek empire fell the roman empire came and kept much of what the greeks had and it was considered really to be the achievement of society to this point. It was, it was probably what North America believes that they are or have been to the world. This is a culture beyond culture. This is wisdom beyond wisdom. And so the Greek culture permeated really the whole known world, the Mediterranean world, everything, every place that was conquered. And so Paul uses this even sometimes it it had conquered so much of the world. He uses it to refer to the difference between Jews and Gentiles because it it just assumed everybody, everybody who was under Greek influence. But you'll notice then that he says there are those who have Greek culture, but then he notices, he says this, and he contrasts it with this word barbarian. And and again, he's making he's describing the Gentiles that he was describing the Gentiles who were like Greeks in sophistication in their culture, and, and it's clear because of the meaning of the word barbarian. In other words, he's making this contrast between these this Greek culture and these barbarians. Now, the word barbarian is actually an English word. Uh, it, the English word barbarian is actually a transliteration. I mean, of the of the Greek word. And it's again, one of those words that has been brought over just like baptism for baptizo, which means to dip. And this is an poetic word. That is, it's a word that sounds like it means. Now we're familiar with those words. A bee does, what does a bee do? He buzzes, right? Bacon sizzles. I'm glad, I'm glad there's still some bacon eaters. Right? And so this word sa- literally sounds like that, like bar, bar, bar. And that's lit- literally where the word barbarian comes from. They, the, the, to the Greeks, as they listened to other languages, they just thought they were uncultured, and uncouth, and they would just say, it sounded like they were speaking like bar, 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 bar. Right? There he goes again. Bar, 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 bar. Right? So they, they, it was a term of derision. And so they considered those other cultures unsophisticated. They considered them uncultured. And they looked down on them. And he says, I'm a minister to what? The Greeks and the barbarians. To the cultured and the uncultured, is what he's saying. It doesn't matter of your cultural status, it doesn't matter if you're sophisticated, it doesn't matter if you're not. And then he has a second set of nouns here, the foolish and the wise, or the wise and the foolish. And he says, uh, Paul uses this same word in verse 22, if you, in chapter 1, where he speaks and he says, professing to be wise, they became what? Fools. Mm-hmm. Professing to be wise. And. The idea here is he's referring to those who are formally educated. Those who've been trained and taught. And again, the Greeks thought that their philosophy and their teaching was beyond anything that had ever come before. And there was a, a mental superiority because they had, were educated and they read and they taught philosophy. And they knew all of these writers. They were producing books. And he says, I, I, I'm, actually, I'm actually a minister to those who are what? Educated. And Paul himself would probably fall in that category. He was an educated man who knew languages. And we, we discussed him at the beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. But the foolish were those who considered to be uneducated, untrained, and untaught. Those are the ones that didn't get an education. Those are the ones who didn't have a Greek upbringing. And so Paul says, I'm dividing people, and he says, by their education. And so Paul says, actually, none of that matters to me. I've been called to give the gospel, and it doesn't matter. I don't care about your culture. I don't care about your education. I don't care how sophisticated you are. I don't care who you are. My call is to what? To bring the gospel to all the Gentiles without distinction. Whether you're cultured and educated. Whether you're uncultured and uneducated. Paul says it doesn't matter. I am obligated to all of you. Regardless of your external differences. This is the gospel is for you. And Paul says, wherever I go, it doesn't matter. If I go to Asia, I go to Spain. Even if I come to Rome, I'm going to find Gentiles who fall into these categories. And he says, I'm under obligation to all of them. None of them I'm not obligated to. I'm going to find believers like that. Now, Paul says, I'm under obligation, and he says, it doesn't matter if they're externals. I don't care what color they are. I don't care what their background is. I don't care if they're rich, poor, cultured, uncultured, none of it. And Paul's foundation for this is what? The character of God. The reality that God himself is what? He is not a respecter of persons. we often look at people and we judge them by the package. We have immediate reactions to them. But that's not the way God acts and that's not the way we are to act. In fact, if you just turn over to chapter 2, verse 11, Paul is talking about God's future judgment and notice in verse 10 Saying to the Jews, going to meet God's judgment, and the Greek, and in this case Gentiles, are going to meet God's judgment for what? There's no partiality with God. God judges everyone by the same standard. There's no partiality. He doesn't say, oh, you're Jewish, so you're in. Oh, you're Gentile, you're out. He doesn't say, oh, you're rich, you're in, or you're really clever, you're in. He judges by the same standard, which is his righteousness. Everyone is judged on their understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And he will mete out punishment exactly, rightly, and justly according to his character because he knows all things. There's no witnesses when God judges because God knows all things. And he will do it fairly and justly and rightly. So he says there's no partiality. God doesn't care about nationality issues. He doesn't care about your status. There's no partiality. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, speaking, Moses says, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awesome God who does not what? Show partiality. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. He is exactly the same. Moses says he executes justice for orphans and widows. He's not impressed by wealth, he's not impressed by status. In fact, he actually looks out for those who are needy. And he says he shows love for the alien by giving food and clothing. He doesn't care about your citizenship. Ephesians 6 9, Paul talks about slaves and masters. He says, Masters, give up threatening. Know that your master and and their that your master and their master is in heaven. You both have the same master. You're both the same. God doesn't care about your status. He doesn't care about your ethnicity. He doesn't care about the color of your skin. God will judge impartially. We use two different English words to describe the full range of partiality and we could call it favoritism and prejudice. Favoritism is unfairly showing favor to someone based solely on external factors and prejudice is showing contempt for someone based solely upon external factors. And it's all sin. It's all sin. Well, What do we mean by external external factors? Well, James talks about that in James chapter 2. James says in verse 1, My brethren, do not hold your faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of what? Personal favoritism. And then he gives the illustration. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring, that was uncommon in that days. Uh, Most of the Jewish people at this point had been dispersed. They were poor. And so if someone came in with a big fancy gold ring, people would notice. And he says, dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes a poor man in dirty clothes, and you, say, you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, stand over there and sit at my footstool. Have you not made distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Now notice he doesn't criticize the rich, nor does he criticize the poor, but he does criticize the response of those who would judge someone by their, by their status, by their wealth, by their externals. God looks on the heart. He says in verse nine, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as what transgressors? It's sin. There's no other way to put it. It's sin. What law did they break? You haven't loved your neighbor as yourself, right? So God is not a respecter of persons. There's equality at the foot of the cross. Galatians, Paul says in 328, there's neither Jew nor Greek. He's saying when it comes to salvation, it's for all the same grace, the same graces are given to every single believer regardless of your nationality. He said there's neither slave nor free. I don't care about your economic status. I don't care how rich you are. I don't know how poor you are. When you come to Christ, there's equality at the cross. There's neither male nor female. In other words, this grace of God goes, extends to all. Now, he's not eliminating those in reality as we live, but he's saying when it comes to spiritual issues as far as salvation, there's no difference. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. There's equality at the cross, regardless of your economic status, regardless of who you are. I want to make it clear, he's not, making, he's not saying that there are not distinctions, because we still have male and female, God created them that way. We still recognize that there are Jews and Greeks, they didn't disappear. But in God's agenda, as, as, as it comes to judging, they are all equal. So we are to look beyond the external. We are to look for what God looks for and value every member of the church. Don't look at the appearance. Don't look at the race. Don't look at the ethnicity. Don't look at the color of the skin. Don't look at the popularity. Don't look at their dress. Don't look at their hygiene. Don't look at their status. Look at them and see them as what? A child of God, a part of the family of God. Has God adopted them? Has God saved them? Has God made them his own? Has he not placed them as his children in his family? And he says, we too need to receive all believers and not have a partiality or separation. So Paul says, use your giftedness, receive all believers. And then he comes to our final commitment. We must keep the gospel the main thing. We must keep the gospel, the main thing. He says, so for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And Paul says, I'm eager to do this. I'm eager to come to Rome and do this because I have been given commission to preach the gospel. This I am the apostle to the Gentiles and I'm just eager to actually do what God has called me to do. Notice this, he says, so to you also who are in Rome. Now Paul is preaching the gospel here, and he's writing to the church at Rome. So the question that might pop into our heads, and the question we might ask is, why is he giving the gospel to people who are already saved? Why would he need to give the gospel to people who are already saved? It's a bit redundant, isn't it? Well, why would he do that? After all, I mean, the gospel is pretty simple. We can give most of the facts in a few moments. But Paul here is not speaking about the packaged gospel that we sometimes have, where we get this little package of information that we try to get across to people as quickly as possible. doesn't want you to just recite the, the, the gospel message as it were, that information that is necessary for salvation. Now oftentimes in churches, churches are committed to continually using the, the church as their outreach. And so their, their goal is to bring unsaved into the church and then what do we give them? We try to give them the gospel. And so over and over, people are brought into the church and they're given the gospel and the sheep are starving. Because they never get anything more than the gospel message, the simple gospel message. Now there's a place for preaching the gospel message for sure. But when Paul says we must keep the gospel central, there are several things that he does not mean, and I want us to understand this. He does not mean that we are obligated to completely give a simple gospel message over and over and over in the church. So that every time you come to church, you just hear the same message. You could put it on a loop. Now, there's nothing wrong with giving the gospel message, and we want to make sure that we continually bring the gospel message. Because we know if we gather together with a group of people, there is someone here that's unsaved. There's someone who's not responded to that gospel, and we certainly want to give that. But that's not being gospel centered. Being gospel-centered doesn't mean that we use the phrase a lot, right? Let's talk about the gospel. Have you noticed? We want to talk about the gospel, we be gospel-centered. It's kind of a buzzword that people use. You know, We've got to be gospel-centered. That does not make you gospel-centered. Oh, maybe we're getting a correction here, right? It also doesn't mean being gospel-centered that no other biblical doctrinal issues really matter as long as we agree on the simple message. There are those who just say, all we need to do is agree on on the gospel message and everything else is up. We can just, you know, we can disagree on baptism and we can disagree on eschatology, we can disagree on sign gifts, all of that's fine. Just as long as we get the gospel, just the central message of the gospel right. Doctrine is extremely important. And it's important in many areas. And correct doctrine gives you the freedom to live the Christian life like you should. And it goes beyond the message, the simple message of the gospel. It also doesn't mean that since we all agree on the gospel, that that's what we don't have to be sanctified. Just just agree to the gospel facts and we'll just that's all you need you can just go live in like you want to you don't have to be active in pursuing sanctification just 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 relax we got the we're gospel centered we got it right but that's not what Paul means when Paul came he didn't just bring the simple gospel now he certainly did because he starts this book, and when he, he comes, he presents the essential truths of the gospel and the good news. And he starts with what the depravity of man and the, and the, and the problem that man is in, and the fact that God man is under God's wrath. And he really doesn't get to the good news till later on when he describes the, the wages, where he describes what God has done in justification for us. And he explains in chapter four the, the essentials of justification alone by faith alone. And then chapters five to eight, the effects of the gospel. Having been justified with Christ, what we have peace with God. We're united with him. And so Paul goes through, and as he gives the gospel, remember the Romans is a book about what the gospel that Paul does not stop with jesus died on the cross rose again seated at the right hand of the father and is coming back paul gave after the the initial giving of the gospel he now turns and he goes through chapters 12 to 16 and he says now live out the gospel in other words the gospel is not just saving, but it is transforming. And the gospel goes to every area of your life and he says, the truth of the word of God is the gospel. It's more than just the message of how to get saved, it's how to live because the gospel, remember your salvation, you got saved, but you are your salvation is not complete. You are in the process of sanctification which will ultimately lead at your death to glorification and then your salvation will be complete and he says the gospel is is part of you obeying all the commands of Scripture so that you are transformed by the Word of God and so Paul didn't just bring Jesus died on the cross he brought every implications of the gospel and how it is to be transformed and how that gospel should transform you and how to live that gospel out. So Paul says, I, this gospel is more than just the message of salvation. It is how that affects you in every area of your life. Colossians chapter one. Paul says in Colossians chapter one, verse five, as he introduces the letter, he says in verse five, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard, this hope that you heard in the word of truth, And he says, what I mean is the gospel. So he brings the gospel at the end of verse 5. Now watch what he says about the gospel in verse 6. Which has come to you, just as in all the world also, it is what? Constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard and understood the grace of God's truth. Did you hear that? The gospel came in and started to do what? to do its work and transforming you. It doesn't stop at salvation. It doesn't stop at conversion, I should say, but it is continuing on transforming your life. And he says it's bearing fruit and increasing, even has been doing since also the day you heard and understood the grace, of, the grace of God in truth. In other words, when you got saved. It didn't stop, it kept bearing fruit. It's still bearing fruit, it's still increasing. And so Paul says, I'm coming to bring the gospel And he says, this is central. This is central and I'm committed to bringing the gospel to you because this is what is necessary for you. This is necessary for your growth. This is necessary for spirituality. This is necessary for Christ-likeness. And we too must be committed in our relationships and in our church to the centrality of the word of God. The word of God is, and the gospel is contained in the word of God and we must be committed. To it. We don't need outside helps. We don't need philosophies from somewhere else. We don't need truth from somewhere else. We only need to meet around the word of God. It is the only place to find truth. It is the only place that we know for sure that is true. It is divine revelation, unaltered, inerrant, Unable to lead you astray. And it is what is necessary when we come together. And we must be fully committed to the sufficiency of the word of God. Paul says, I'm coming to preach it. I'm committed to it. This is what's necessary for you. And he says, you need to be committed to it. You need to be committed to the word of God. So... Understand, you respond, it brings you to salvation. Secondly, the gospel continues its work as the implications of that truth are brought to bear on our life and bear fruit. So Paul says, I'm committed to these. And Paul says, I'm committed to the church and I'm committed to, the, to, to, to believers and this is what I'm committed to. I'm committed to Christian relationships. I'm continued to growing together and, and being together. And so he says, make these commitments. Make these commitments as people. Make these commitments as a church. Be committed to give thanksgiving. Be committed to prayer. Enjoying one another. Encouraging one another. Using your giftedness. Committed to spiritual growth. Continually being together. Centered on the gospel. Paul says, make these commitments. And you will be a healthy church and you will be a healthy believer. And Paul says, this is what the church needs. This is what believers need. And when we do that, we will be healthy. We will live as God has intended to us to do in community, living together for his glory. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us. And we thank you for these commitments that Paul has given us. And I pray that we would look at these commitments and that we would be willing to make these commitments to one another and that we would live these out. And that we would recognize the necessity that you have put us in the church. You have put us in relationship with one another And you have tended us to live in community. And I pray that we would be those who would be committed to the things that you are. And that you might be glorified through us as we live according to your will, I pray in your name. Amen.